Well, good morning. Welcome to Desert Hills Baptist Church. Last Sunday was epic with everything that took place and everything that uh, went on. And we're grateful for all that the Lord has done uh, in our church and in our lives and looking forward to continuing in our series that we began last week. Uh, Post-resurrection now, before Easter, we were looking at the events that took place before the resurrection. And now we're looking at the events that have taken place after the resurrection. We're going to find ourselves once again in the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24, and we're going to begin here in just a moment in verse 13 with a message entitled, From Confusion to Revelation. From Confusion to Revelation. Now, have you ever been really lost? Like, really lost? Anybody ever been really lost? Care to admit it? How many of you have never been lost at one time in your life? You've never been lost. We've all been really lost. You need to be somewhere, but you don't know how to get there. Now, there was a time when I was in college, I was traveling from Florida to Michigan as I was asked to preach in a small country church in Chatsworth, Georgia, as I was in my travels. At the time, I was on sabbatical from the Marriott Corporation to do a summer internship at a church in Melbourne, Florida. So on the way to Chatsworth, I checked into the Atlanta Marriott Grand Marquis Hotel downtown because I needed somewhere to stay for that evening. In fact, back in those days, I could stay at a Marriott for $29, and that night I stayed in the Marriott Presidential Suite in the Grand Marquis Marriott Hotel, Atlanta, Georgia, for $29. It was awesome. Now, my friend, whose dad invited me, she told me that Chatsworth was just outside of Atlanta, so I was excited to preach as I was on my way to visit family in Michigan and passing through Georgia. And I was also excited to stay at one of Marriott's finest hotels in the entire South. But as I made my way from Atlanta to Chatsworth, I realized her directions were off. And let me just say this. I'm not a misogynist or anything like that. But let me just say this. Don't trust the directions of a woman. Amen? <laughs> she gave me some bad direction. Now, these were before the days of Google. How many of you can remember the days before Google? These were before the days of Google, before the days of MapQuest, and even for some of you, before the days of Thomas Guides. These were even before the days of readily available cell phones. So she told me to take I-75 North to Highway 136 to Highway 411, 411, and take a left at the Lumberyard and take another left at the Blue House and go down a spell till I came to the red house and then take a ride at the red house and I would eventually see the church. Now I thought, how hard can this be? So I left Atlanta, I took I-75 to Highway 136, which was easy, and although I realized Chatsworth was, wasn't just outside of Atlanta, it was one and a half hours away, I found Highway 411, but I couldn't find the lumberyard, I couldn't find the blue house, and I couldn't find the red house. So I stopped at the only gas station I saw along the way, and the attendant directed me to another Baptist church which didn't have anything going on and turned out to be the wrong one. So I decided to go to the only person I knew in all of Chatsworth, Georgia, 
uh, that gas station attendant, go back and see if maybe he could direct me along the way. And although he wasn't busy, he was annoyed to see me back uh, to get directions and basically told me uh, to drive around until I found uh, this Baptist church. Because in his words, there's a Baptist church in every hole and holler in Georgia. So I proceeded to drive around the unbooming metropolis of Chatsworth, Georgia on my search to find this church that I was supposed to be speaking at at 7 p.m. And I was driving around for over an hour. I saw a bunch of logs that had been cut down and by all appearances looked like they were sitting on the ground for years. Now when she told me to turn at the lumber yard, I was thinking, Wicks Lumber... Uh, Home Depot, 84 Lumber. I was thinking of a lumber yard. But my idea of a lumber yard and her idea of a lumber yard were two completely different things. The lumber yard she was referring to were the, the bunch of logs that had been lying on a fenced in area for years. That was the lumber yard. So I, I turned left. And I went down about a mile or so until I found a kind of blue house. It really wasn't blue. It was in the family of blue, but it wasn't blue. You know what I mean? Like blue is blue, and this really wasn't blue, but it was the closest thing to blue that I had seen in a long time. So I decided to turn left, and I drove a spell about two miles and took a right at a red house, kind of red house. And as I drove it down a little further, I found an old church called, get this, not old-fashioned, F-A-S-H-I-O-N-E-D, but old-fashioned, F-A-S-H-I-O-N, old-fashioned Baptist church. <laughs> I said to myself, this must be the place. Cars were in the parking lot. I went inside. It took a, an hour and a half trip. took finally three hours to get to my destination because I was lost. And it's funny, I got into the church and, and I walked in and everybody was in the choir. <laughs> and I felt a little awkward. I was the only person, there was like 25 people in the room and everybody was in the choir. I was the only person sitting in the audience and I'm wondering what in the world is going on in these churches in Georgia. <laughs> and finally they invited me up and I preached and everything went on and I, we had a good old time. But what a horrible feeling to be lost, to not know where you are and not know how to get where you want to go. And this is exactly where the disciples find themselves on Easter Sunday after Jesus had resurrected from the dead. They were lost. They were not knowing where they were, and they weren't sure where they were going. They had pinned their hopes on Jesus being their Messiah deliverer. They had assumed that Jesus would set them free from the shackles of Rome and the oppression, the religious oppression of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but he got himself crucified. To compound matters, several women had gone to the garden tomb to anoint his body with spices, and they had an encounter with an angel telling them that Jesus wasn't in the tomb because he had risen. They went and told Peter and John, who then raced to the tomb to confirm that the tomb was indeed empty. Now, the news of the angel's announcement had spread, and we find 
two disciples here in Luke 24, different disciples than those are that are described in Mark 16, Cleophas and most likely his wife traveling to a place called Emmaus. Now, many people believe this Cleophas to be Jesus's foster uncle, Joseph, Mary's husband's brother. And, and, and Emmaus was a seven mile or so trip northwest of Jerusalem and was also known as a place of relaxation as people would often dip in the hot springs there to kind of chill out and calm down. And although the Bible doesn't say this, I believe Cleophas and his wife were traveling to Emmaus Easter Sunday afternoon to process the supposed demise of Jesus and now news of his resurrection, and they had gone there to relax in the hot springs for a spell to wrap their minds around the circumstances that had just taken place. And now here's how the Bible describes this account in verse 13. Notice what the Bible says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. And they talked of all these things which had happened. Then notice what it says in verse 15. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, as they're walking with travelers going uh, past them to Emmaus, and as travelers coming from Emmaus back to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus starts walking alongside of them, and they don't even notice him. In fact, here's what the Bible says in verse 16, but their eyes were holden that they shouldn't know him. Their eyes were restrained so they couldn't recognize Jesus. Now, notice what takes place in verse 17. And he, Jesus, said unto them, what manner of communications are these that you have to one another as you walk and are sad? Now, Jesus not only knew their physical location in joining them for this divine appointment, but he also knew their emotional and their spiritual location as he addresses their sadness. And, and, and let me just say this morning, do you realize that God is more concerned about you than you are? Do you realize that God is more concerned about you than even you are? I love what Psalm 103 and verse 13 says, Like as the Father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him, for he knoweth our frame, and he remembereth that we are dust. In other words, he considers us, he thinks upon us, he loves us, he cares for us. Notice their short response to Jesus. And one of them, whose name was Cleophas, answering, said unto him, Art thou a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? Imagine telling the omniscient Son of God, who was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, Have you been hiding under a rock? Don't you know what's going on? Imagine having that conversation. The Bible goes on to say in verse 19, And he said unto them, What things, Jesus? And they said unto him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests delivered him to be condemned and crucified. But we trusted that he, he it was that was going to redeem Israel. And it's been three days since these things were done. Verse 22, yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished because they went and they didn't find his body there. And an angel said that he was alive. Verse 22 and 23. And certain of them, verse 24, which were with us, went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, and they saw him not. 
And then we see Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus yet. He sets them straight and gives them correction. Notice what it says in verse 25. And he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? Jesus succinctly tells them that this is exactly how the prophets foretold that the Messiah would come. It was necessary for Christ, the Messiah, to suffer so that God could be glorified and that salvation could be accomplished for man. Man needed a perfect man as a sacrifice to die for the sins of man, and that man was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then there was a time of reflection. Notice what it says in verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus literally interpreted the scriptures during this seven-mile walk, starting in Genesis, going all the way through the book of Malachi to help them understand the prophecies concerning his incarnation, his life, and his death. And no doubt he started in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 to explain that the ministry of the Messiah would destroy the devil's work. No doubt he, he took them to Psalm 8 and verses 5 and 6 to explain that he would be made lower than the angels to serve and die for mankind. No doubt Jesus would speak to them about him being the perfect sacrifice in Psalm 40. No doubt Jesus would speak to them about Jesus himself preaching righteousness to Israel in Psalm 40, verse 9. No doubt Jesus would speak to them about him and his ministry teaching them in parables, as it says in Psalm chapter 78. No doubt Jesus would teach them that the Messiah would be the stone that causes the people of Israel to stumble, as it says in Isaiah chapter 8, and verse 14. No doubt Jesus would teach them that his ministry would begin in the land of Galilee, that the Messiah would would have a ministry of miracles, that the Messiah would be preceded by a forerunner, and we know that was fulfilled in John the Baptist, that the Messiah would be despised and rejected of men, that the Messiah would set those in physical, emotional, and spiritual captivity free, as it says in Isaiah 61. No doubt that Jesus and that, that Emmaus Road walk spoke to them that the Messiah would be betrayed, as it says in Zechariah, for 30 pieces of silver, and that the Messiah, as it says in Job chapter 19 and Psalm 118 and Isaiah 25, would resurrect himself from the grave. And notice what the scriptures tell us in Luke chapter 24 and verse 28. And as they drew nigh into the village, Emmaus, he made, us as, he made as though he would have gone further. Jesus had just explained to them clearly dozens and dozens of scriptures concerning his birth, his life, and his death, and he's planning on traveling on from them further up the road, but the Bible says they constrained him, verse 29, and told him to abide with them, for it was toward the evening, and the day was spent, and he went in to tarry with them, and it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to them, and after they had some encouragement and explanation from the word of God, and they had some rest in physical refreshment, here's what we see taking place. There's revelation. There's revelation. And sometimes, let me just say this, this isn't the message this morning, sometimes we're, when we're in a bad place, 
Sometimes when we're filled with discouraging thoughts, sometimes when we're depressed, sometimes we don't even know what about. Sometimes holistically what we need is we need to come apart for a while before we come apart. Sometimes we just need a little food in our belly. We need a little rest for our body. And we need a little relaxation for our soul. And notice what the Bible says takes place in verse 31. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him. It's Jesus! Oh, man! He was walking with us the whole time, and we didn't even know it. It was the nephew. They didn't even know it. Wow, man, and he, he showed us, he reminded us, he affirmed us, he, he encouraged us. Whoa, he just took off. And he vanished out of their sight, and they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened uh, to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour, so they had traveled all that way to Emmaus, all discouraged, all despondent, all depressed. They are going to Emmaus, I believe, to get some relaxation and refreshment. They're wanting to sit in the hot springs and let their body calm down just a little bit. And as they get there, Jesus uh, reveals himself and they say whoa we got to get out of here we got to go tell the others and the Bible says and they returned to Jerusalem and found 11 gathered together and they that were with them saying the Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon and they told what things were done on the way and how he was known of them in the breaking of bread so what can we learn from this account in Luke 24 and how did these aimless, directionless, doubting people change that first Easter afternoon? And how can God use what is taking place here in Luke chapter 24 to change our lives as well? First of all, God doesn't always work in the way that we want him to. God doesn't always work in the way that we want him to. It is evident from the text that Cleophas and his wife thought that Jesus would set up his earthly kingdom during his ministry. They thought that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel from the bondage they were in to Rome. Notice what it says in Luke 24 and 21. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. In other words, they had their plan... God had his plan, but each plan did not align. And as a result, not just these disciples, but all of the disciples were discouraged. They were depressed. They were despondent. They were lost. They were directionless. And, and the fact of the matter is we too get the same way. We have our plan we don't understand and recognize that God could have his plan and that sometimes his plan is different than our plan. And when things don't seem to align, we too get discouraged, depressed, and despondent. And we somehow get this idea in our mind that God is our cosmic genie and he's to bow to every whim and way that we have because after all, we spent some time making that plan. But that's not how... It always works. In fact, the book of Isaiah says it this way, his ways 
are not our ways. Now, sometimes they align. Sometimes God's plan is your plan. Sometimes the, 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 the path aligns and, and the, the things that God puts on our heart come to pass and we understand God is leading us there and God protects us and guides us and equips us along the way. But oftentimes, it's not. And the fact is, we should desire God's plan and His will to be done more than anything else. When my wife and I moved from Florida to California to start a church there in Southern California, we found out she had all kinds of problems as she was carrying our firstborn child. And I won't go through the entire story, but I'll, I'll take just a little tidbit to share with you. In the midst of that, they told my wife that if she went through the pregnancy, uh, she would probably lose her life. And not only that, they gave us really no chance of the child that she was carrying, no chance of that child living. And so along the way, we're trying to start a church. We're overwhelmed with medical bills. We didn't have insurance as we left Florida and came to, to California and we didn't have any family or friends in, in California. We didn't know anybody outside of two pastors and their families. And we didn't know how everything was going to work out. We didn't know uh, what was going to happen with my wife. We didn't know what was going to happen with our baby. But our prayer was this, as we prayed on a regular basis, God, we don't understand why all this is happening. God, we don't understand what your plan is in this moment and in this hour. But God, we want your will to be done more than anything else. And God, we know that whatever your will is, it'll bring good to us and it'll bring glory to yourself. And then I'd pray something like this, God, if you'd allow my wife to live and this child to live, we'll continually talk of it as a testimony to your goodness and greatness. Amen. That baby that the doctors gave us no chance of living is 25 years old. My wife is still around, thankfully. But you see, we had to surrender our will to His. We have to trust in the fact that our sovereign God is always working things together for our good and our glory, His glory. That's exactly what's going on in the text. Cleophas and his wife didn't completely understand it. They couldn't fathom that these events were part of God's plan. But that's how God often works. He works in the circumstances of our lives that will best bring glory back to himself. And we've heard the verse before, almost to the point to where it seems normal. And we know, read it with me, and we know that all things work together for good 
to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Let's together again. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Secondly, what do we see from the text? Expectant faith was absent from not just these disciples' mindset, but all of the disciples' mindset. You see, Jesus had told his followers many times, including Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, Matthew chapter 17, verse 9, Matthew chapter 22, verse 23, Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, and Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 through 32, that he would be killed and that he would rise from the dead. You would have thought that the disciples would have set up some bleachers somewhere in the distance of the garden tomb. You would have thought they would have got their popcorn out. You'd have thought they would have had their, their, their candy out. They would have had their sodas out. You'd have thought they'd have been ready to see how it was all going to go down. <laughs> I can't wait. Did you get the popcorn? Okay, I got the popcorn. Did you get the Twizzlers? I, I got the Twizzlers. Did you get the big, the big uh, Harkins cup? Yeah, I got the big Harkins cup. Did you, get, did you get the chocolate to go with the popcorn? Yeah, the salty and sweet, baby. Yeah, we're ready to go. We're waiting to see that stone roll away. We're waiting to see Jesus pass to the tomb. Woo, he said it's going to happen. It's surely going to happen. But there were no treats. There were no bleachers. There were no popcorn. There was nothing in the way of expectant faith. But the ladies and Peter and John gave the reports about the angel's message and the empty tomb, and then these disciples couldn't fathom the possibility that God would do what he had said. And we too are the same way. We couldn't fathom that God would really do what he had said. Do you know there are hundreds of promises right here in this Bible that are still applicable for you and me today? Hundreds! Hundreds! And oftentimes we approach the Bible as a good book, a, a worthy book, a book full of truth, a, a book full of things that uh, are for people of faith. But oftentimes we lack the faith to put those things to the test. And we see promises like Matthew 7, verse 7, Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and you sh it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. To him that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. And we think at that, and we look at that, and we think, wow, that's a good promise for someone else. Instead of understanding that that promise is for us and we're to get down on our knees and down on our face and prostrate before God and on a continual basis, ask and, and give and cast and, and, and lean not unto our own understanding but unto Him and give it all to God and give our burdens to God and surrender to God on a daily basis. But we lack the faith to put it to the test. We see promises like found in Matthew chapter 17 where Jesus said, if you have the faith as the grain of a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, remove hence to yonder place and it shall remove and nothing shall be impossible to you. And we think, wow, that's lovely. Wow, that's good. And wow, that was probably really good for the disciples. And I'm sure they saw great and wonderful things, but that's not for me. 
And we don't understand that the same God of the Old Testament and the same God of the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus Christ is the same God that we have today that can still move mountains. And we think, oh, that might be good for somebody else. But that's not good for me. We see instruction on generosity found in Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give it unto your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. And we think to ourselves, that's probably good for somebody else. And I'm glad people put that to the test. And I'm glad the church can go forward. And I'm glad the needs of ministries can be met. But I'm glad that I am not participating in that. And we think that's good for somebody else and not. For me, we see promises of God's presence and help, such as Psalm 121, where the psalmist says, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help cometh from the Lord, which made the heaven and the earth. And we think to ourselves, wow, that's probably good for somebody else, and wow, that's a lovely promise, and I hope somebody gets encouragement from that, but we never allow ourselves to be put in a situation where we have to be expectant, we have to lean completely on God, and we have the only help that will help us in any situation is God. These two disciples were hampered in their growth until they could believe what God had said. We too will be hampered in our growth until and unless we believe what God has already said and put it to the test. You see, we ought to be putting ourselves in positions where we are continually asking God to intervene. And unless we do, we will never grow. Unless we do, our faith will never be active. Unless we do, our faith will be nothing more than ethereal. Thirdly, for the discouraged and the depressed person, there is no good news. For the discouraged and the depressed person, there is no good news. The scriptures make it clear that Cleophas and his wife were sad. They were discouraged, and they were depressed. Notice what the Bible says in Luke chapter 24 and verse 17. And he said unto them, Jesus, what manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk? And notice Jesus called them out and are, what? Sad. They had received the news that Jesus had died. They'd also received the news that Jesus was alive. But they refused to believe it and to get encouragement from that news. After all, they had seen and they had heard uh, after spending the better part of three and a half years with Jesus, they couldn't find any validity in the reports of the women and Peter and John because they wanted to stay discouraged. They couldn't uh, uh, imagine in their minds that what the women and Peter and John had said could possibly be true. And so even good news was bad news to them. In fact, the Bible goes on to say, Yea, certain women also of our company made us astonished 
which were early at the sepulcher, verse 24, and certain of them which went with us to the sepulcher and found it, even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. We often are the same way. You see, to the discouraged person, no news is good news. Everything is bad. Everything is tainted through the color of their negative lens. Here's what the psalmist said in Psalm 77 in verse 1. He said, I cried unto my God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. And then he said this, my soul refused to be comforted. That may be exactly where some of us are right now. We're refusing to be comforted of God. We're refusing to be comforted by the people of God. We're refusing to be comforted by the people that God has allowed into our life because we're discouraged, we're despondent, and we're depressed. And let me say this morning, I'm not throwing stones. I'm not doing that. They were thinking here about their circumstances. They were thinking about themselves instead of the possibilities of hope beyond their discouragement. And let me just say this morning, I have been there. I have thought to myself, there are dungeons beneath the castles of despair. I remember talking to a pastor friend years ago and, and uh, he was a counselor that I would go to oftentimes when I was discouraged and, and finally patient enough to tell me, Adam, you are negative. I mean, everything that is positive that God is allowing you to see, everything that is positive that's going on in your life, you can't see it because your, your lens is clouded. You are discouraged and you're depressed and no news is good news to you. And I realized... He was right. And I asked God to change me at the soul level. And I got a prayer that I memorized during that time. It's been a help to me. It's been a help to many others as they've gone through discouragement, despondency, and depression. God, grant me the strength to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as a pathway to peace. Taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that he will make things right if I surrender to his will so that I may personally be happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. I literally memorized that prayer and prayed that prayer on a regular basis and God changed my outlook and my frame of mind. And I believe he wants to do the same thing for some of us even here today. Amen. Do you know hope is a fearful thing? 
living beyond the possibilities of loss, living beyond the possibilities of our pain, living beyond the possibilities of our discouragement, hope is a fearful thing. Discouragement and depression are most of the time comfortable. They're comfortable places to be in. And we have to look beyond our current circumstances toward, toward what can possibly be and the possibilities that God can allow in our life. Fourthly, when they heard, listened, and went back to and understood God's word, they were lifted out of their discouragement. Notice what it says in Luke chapter 24 and verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And if you skip down to verse 32 in the text, and they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? You see, God's word is transformative, transformative in nature, it is literally living. In fact, Hebrews says it this way about the Word of God. It says that it is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the divine asunder of soul and spirit and is of the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God's Word is a light. God's Word is a lamp. It gives us wisdom. It reminds us of our hope. It reminds us of His promises. It helps us to understand God's identity and our identity. It's of utmost important so much so that the prophet Job said this he said I esteem the words of his prophecy more than my necessary food Job said I need God's word more than I need physical food Amen. but here's what we think to ourselves I tried that once or that's good for somebody else but my problems are too complex my problems are too involved my problems are too deep to get encouragement from the Word of God. Lastly, what can we learn from this text? God knows right where we are and cares to help and aid us right where we're at out of our difficulty. Notice what the Bible says, And it came to pass while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? Jesus approached these saddened, these confused travelers in the midst of their sadness and led them to a place where they understood and had revelation of the real circumstances at hand. And let me just say this, God wants to do the same with us. He wants to be with us in the midst of our sadness, in the midst of our difficulty, in the midst of our depression. Here's what Isaiah said in Isaiah 41 and verse 10, a familiar passage of Scripture. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Did you get that? Fear thou not, God says, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. 
Here's what the psalmist said in Psalm 23 and verse 1. He said, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And then it says this, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because the Bible says, I know that God is with me. You see, even in the shadow of death, we as God's people know that God wants to be with us. Even in the harshest of circumstances, even in the gravest of situations, and we can cast all of our care upon Him, knowing that He cares for us. You see, these disciples and others were forever changed by these truths and the truth of the resurrection. And the question this morning I want to ask you is, will we allow God to change us? Let me ask this question this morning. Are you a child of God? Have you understood the whole reason that Jesus came to this world to live a perfect life, to, to die on Calvary's cross, to raise three days later from the grave? It was to purchase uh, your redemption, to, to live the perfect life that would be required for the perfect sacrifice so that man, women, boys, and girls, past, present, and future could be redeemed. Have you been saved? Have you received his payment? Have you understood that God is always working things together for our good and His glory? Have you understood the opportunities of having expectant faith? Have you understood that for the discouraged, no good is good, no news is good news, and maybe if that is you, maybe you need to change your perspective. Maybe this morning is your come to Jesus moment where you begin to look at things in another lens and see things as God sees them. Maybe you need to listen and heed and remind yourself of God's word is the key to getting you out of discouragement. And maybe you need to be reminded that God knows right where you're at. And he wants to hold your hand as you're going through the most difficult circumstances that you've ever faced. You see, Cleophas and his wife went from confusion to revelation. They were lost, and then they got found. Maybe that's where we need to be today.